Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, as we consider this passage of Scripture this morning, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to see uh, that the spread of sin that is presented there for us. Lord, and I, and I pray you'd help us to see your faithfulness in light of that and in spite of that sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to just see these as, as facts presented upon a, a page, but as spiritual realities. Lord, as, as realities that, that impact even us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see who we are. Help us to see ourselves correctly from this passage. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see who you are that we might respond in repentance and faith and obedience. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our passage this morning is um, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And so I'd ask you to please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we, as we look at this passage. Um, I'll continue reading through to the, the end of the chapter. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and so afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it with, uh, to a cubit above and set a door in the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every, of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, uh, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. 
Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. For all the differences of the many and great nations throughout the world in religion and morals and language, weapons and dress, there exists no more than two kinds of society, which according to our scriptures, we have rightly called the two cities. One city is the city of men who live according to the flesh. The other is the city of God who live according to the spirit. Thus wrote Augustine in his 426 AD classic, City of God. These two cities are the city of God and the city of the devil. Ground was broken for both cities when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. The Lord declared that the seed of the serpent would be at war with the seed of the woman, promising that the seed of the woman would be bruised in the heel, but the head of the serpent would be crushed. The story of Genesis and the story of the Bible really is the story of the Lord's work in redeeming his covenant people. It is the story of the ensuing war between the Lord's chosen seed and the seed of the rejection of the promise. It is the story of the war between the city of God and the city of the devil. And since the fall, construction of both cities has continued side by side. Yet in our passage this morning, it seems that the city of the devil has gained the upper hand. After the blessed genealogy of chapter 5, things take a serious turn for the worse. Sin will spread and, and will corrupt even the chosen line. However, hope will arise for deliverance will come. The Lord will send a deliverer. The Lord will rescue his people. The Lord will protect his chosen seed. Though people were unfaithful, the Lord remains faithful to his covenant promise to his covenant people. In verses 1 to 4, we we see that sin We see rather that that as man spread over the face of the earth, so did sin. Remember, we've just read the the genealogy of Seth, the, the chosen line. In this passage, the plague of sin seems to have infected even the city of God, even God's chosen line. Verses 1 and 2, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And then in verse 4, we read, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And so afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now this passage this before us, these, these first four verses, in fact, and, and really this, this all the way down to verse eight, there, there's a lot of, of challenging portions, portions uh, that we need to interpret, that we need to understand correctly. Well, the first, that, the first question that, that we probably are asking is, is who were the sons of God? Who were the sons of God that, that, that are in reference here? And, and then in, in relation to that, who are the daughters of man? Well, figuring out who the the sons of God really were will tell us the identity of the daughters of man. 
Now, there's really four main explanations as to who the sons of God are. The first one, and I'll let you know that I, that, that I reject this one from the start, is that the sons of God are somehow pre-Adamic hominids. In, in other words, they, they are, are man-like creatures who evolved prior to the, the creation of Adam. And they were on earth before Adam. So, so the theory is that they are somehow almost man or, or somehow very much like man. Well, there's no textual evidence for that theory whatsoever. The, the Bible simply does not allow for that kind of thinking. It, it doesn't fit the immediate context. It does not fit the broader testimony of Scripture. The second is that the sons of God refers to human judges. This is a view that was put forward by, by theologian Meredith Klein. The, the term that is translated as God here is Elohim, and, and there are times that, that that word is used in this sense. For example, in, in Psalm 82.6, uh, we read, speaking of human beings, I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. But from our immediate context, there, there is no sense at all, again, that, that the line of Cain produced uh, judges or kings. And furthermore, it seems strange that, that Moses here would use the obscure phrase, sons of God, when, he would have, when it was, would be more natural for him just to have used the term judges. Well, the third, the third interpretation, and, and this one is, is uh, more common, it's been held by, by, by some respected men in church history, the, the third interpretation is that the sons of God were angels, that they were angels. And we do have some textual evidence because angels are referred to in the book of Job as the sons of God. The, the so-called um, first book of Enoch um, also describes angels as joining with human women. And we need to be very careful that the, the first book of Enoch and the second book of Enoch was not actually part of the canon of Scripture. It was actually, it was not written by Enoch. It was written by somebody many, many centuries later, probably about the year 200 BC. And this, this individual uh, used the name Enoch in order to, to gain credence uh, or acceptance for, for his false book. Now, just one thing to, to make note of as an aside, that, that first Enoch is actually quoted in, in the book of Jude. Um, but, but just the fact that Jude quotes from the book of Enoch doesn't indicate that the entire book of Enoch is inspired or even true. It, it just says that just that, that, that particular verse is true and it has nothing to do with, with angels and, and women. Similarly, the Apostle Paul quotes the Greek philosopher Epimenides in Titus 1.12, but, but that just in the same way doesn't mean that we should view the writings of, Epimen of Epimenides as being authoritative just what, what, he, what Paul quoted. But the strongest evidence that, that disproves that, that angels are in mind here is the fact that it just doesn't fit the context. All through the context of, of this passage in verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7, judgment is made against human beings. There's no sense there at, at all that, that angels are, are somehow involved in this. Well, the fourth, and what I believe is the correct interpretation, is that the sons of God refers to the line of Seth. And this was the view that was held by Augustine and Luther and Calvin and, and Matthew Henry and, and many other faithful theologians. Sons of God can also be, be rendered godly sons. We also see in the scriptures that the Israelites are referred to as, as the children of God. 
in the Pentateuch, in, in Deuteronomy 14.1, you are the sons of the Lord your God. In Hosea 1.10, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Now, some people might say, well, but the, the children of Israel didn't exist yet. There, there was no children of Israel yet until after Abraham. We need to remember what Moses is doing here. Moses is tracking the line from the line of promise from Adam all the way through to Abraham. We'll see that this genealogy is going to be picked up again in chapter 11. So this very much the, the, it very much fits the context that, that we are talking here about the children of Seth, the, the, the progeny of Seth. It best fits immediate context because Moses has just been writing about two seeds. And again, he's going to continue to do so after the flood narrative. So it seems then that the line of Seth from this passage was intermarrying with the line of Cain. Right? If the sons of God are, are, the, 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 are the, the line of, of Seth, then the daughters of man are the, the progeny of, of Cain. And so what you have here is the, is, the, is the line of promise mixing with the line of rejection. Seth's descendants saw that the, that the women were attractive, and so they took them. Genesis 3.6 uses the same words to describe Eve's sin. She saw that the fruit was good, and she took it. And so in the case of these sons of Seth, the lust of their eyes led them to marry pagans. They were rejecting their godly heritage, and in so doing, they were rejecting the Lord. As Kenneth Matthews says, the Sethite incident of intermarriage with the ungodly leads to the, deteriorate, the deterioration of the godly family. As a forewarning, it alerts the holy seed of Israel not to neglect God's prohibition. Friends, the, the Lord will have no intermarriage between his covenant people and those outside the covenant. Moses was writing, remember, as he is to instruct the people as they entered into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he wanted to inform them of the Lord's injunction against intermarrying the pagan inhabitants of the land. But sadly, they disobeyed again and again, and so they faced the consequences again and again. In Genesis 26, 36, we see Esau's marriage to, to a, a Hittite woman is, is cast in a negative light, not to mention the defiling of Dinah by Shechem in Genesis 34. Think about how the daughters of Moab led the Israelites to idolatry, and the, the Lord sent a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites in, Deuteronomy, in Numbers 25. Or, or think about how Solomon's pagan wives turned his heart after other gods, 1 Kings 11.4. The, the Lord is very serious about his people not joining with unbelievers. We see this principle very clearly in, in 2 Corinthians 6.14 and following. Do not be yoked, unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And that principle that, that's, that's there in, in 2 Corinthians 6, and, and, and by extension also in, in Genesis 6, also applies to, to other close relationships, not just marriage, but, but to business partnerships and, and even to intimate friendships. 
I know of situations where Christians have become business partners with unbelievers. And not only have they been, been pushed to get involved with and to place a greater priority on the business than on other more important things like church and family, but quite often, unbelieving business partners have engaged in unscrupulous business practices that have led, that have, has caused the Christian's testimony to be negatively affected. Intimate friendships with unbelievers will also have a negative impact on, on you and others because friendship with the world is really enmity with God, James 4.4. 4. When, when you are making friends with the world, you are showing that your heart is really not towards God. We need to be very careful here. That doesn't mean that you are to avoid unbelievers altogether. You should have unbelievers in your home. You should look for opportunities to, to bless them and to serve them. But you must share the gospel with them or else you are not truly loving them. Most of the, the so-called friendship evangelism I've seen is far more friendship than it is evangelism. Just ask yourself, have I shared the gospel in my relationships with unbelievers? If not, you really need to reevaluate those relationships. Your love towards, towards God and your love towards them. Close relationships will affect your character because bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 It's also one of the reasons why church discipline is, is so important because even a, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 1 Corinthians 5.6 but as, as important as, as those other relationships are, marriage is obviously the closest of human relationships, specifically what is in view here. Some here know, know the pain uh, of not being able to, to share the, the most important thing in your life with, with the, the most important human in your life. It's hard enough for, for you to, for those who have come to faith after um, getting married and, and are, are now married to an unbeliever, but it is far worse for those who have willfully married an unbeliever. Christian singles, and, and that includes the children here who are generally, Christi generally Christians. You need to determine in your heart right now never to entertain the possibility of dating an unbeliever. Determine it in your heart right now because, because girls, there will be a guy who will come along who, who is, is in the world and is, is, going, and is, is attractive, is going to be nice to you and, and he is going to, to want to, you're going to feel maybe even a, a, a draw towards him. And, and young men, the same thing with, with ladies. You need to determine in your heart to obey the Lord in this. There, there is no such thing as missionary dating your standards will be compromised. You will end up in situations and sins you never thought you'd be, in, you'd be engaged in. You might even find yourself engaged to and even married to an unbeliever. Here in this passage, the, the Lord determines to deal with the, the sin of intermarriage. He says in verse 3, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Again, this is a, there, there's a, a couple of different interpretations um, for this, the, of common interpretations for this. The first is that, that when the flood begins, it will shorten the human lifespan. 
that, that this, as a result of this, that there will be, man will go from these long periods that we saw in the previous genealogy that it's now only going to be 120 years. Well, that really can't be the case because after the flood, we see in the line of, of Shem, Noah's son, that Shem lives for 600 years, far more than 120, that Arpachshad lives 438, Eber 464, and so on. And even some of the patriarchs lived a lot longer than 120 years. Abraham lived for 175 years, and, and Isaac lived for 180. The, the second and, and more likely interpretation is that the 120 years refers to a time of reprieve. A time really of grace before the flood. First Peter 3.20 speaks of God's patience, how God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And so the, in the, the biblical evidence, it took far less than the 120 years for the, for the ark to be completed. God was, was giving grace during that period before he sent the flood to wipe out humanity. And so the Spirit not abiding in man forever is reminiscent of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. There, the, the Spirit of God over the waters restrains chaos and, and, and creates order, but when he withdraws his presence, chaos is unleashed. The flood is unleashed. We see in verse 4 that, that these wicked relationships also had an immediate impact on their children. These, these marriages produced notorious children. The ESV calls them Nephilim. And yet again, this is, this is another um, challenging text to, to interpret. Um, Nephilim, which is used in the ESV here, is a transliteration of the Hebrew. It's, it's, not a, it's, it's a transliteration, not a translation. It's it commonly re related to the word nephal, which means to fall. And so thus, the Nephilim were the, the fallen ones. The, the King James refers to them as giants, and, and it's possible that they were giants. But in, in Numbers 13.33, we, we see another reference to the Nephilim, where the, the cowardly Hebrew spies who scouted out the promised land said, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seemed to them. Now, this couldn't have referred to the same class of people that we read about in Genesis 6 because that, those people were all light, were all wiped out in the flood. There were, there were no Nephilim left after the flood, only the line of Noah. So it couldn't have referred to the actual Nephilim, but what's more likely is that, that this was a scare tactic used by these spies to persuade people of how, how dangerous the land would be and how they shouldn't enter it. So we, we don't need to take the, the testimony of, of these cowardly spies to say that these were actually Nephilim because the scripture says otherwise. Genesis 6.4 calls them mighty men, men of, of renown. And so we could reasonably, reasonably conclude that the Nephilim were wicked and powerful men who gained a reputation by their evil deeds. That they really followed in the sinful footsteps of their parents. I think there's a warning for that for us in this as well. Children who have a parent who has intentionally disobeyed God by marrying an unbeliever have a, have a really a negative message from the start. Because on, on the one hand, their example is of blind rebellion from one parent, but it's willful rebellion on the other. And so if, if that's you, if you sinned 
in, in marrying an unbeliever, then, then you really need to repent. You need to repent before the Lord and, and you need to repent for your, before your children and also before your spouse. Now that doesn't mean you now leave that person. That means you, you now try to, to live a godly life, as godly a life as you can by God's grace in, in, that, in that difficult marriage. But even when one parent comes to faith after marriage, it can be extremely difficult for, for children growing up in a home with, with parents who have opposing views of, of God and of the world. Friends, if you have a mixed marriage, if you, if you are in a marriage with an unbeliever, it is that much more important that you shine the light of the gospel before your children before your spouse. You need to reach out to your church family for support. You need to have other Christians in your home in, in order to, 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 sh to really shine, a, 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 to give a better example, to, to get support as, as, as you seek to, to live in that difficult marriage. And there is hope that by God's grace, your, your children and maybe even your spouse will come to faith through your words and through your life. But you can rest assured that, that even if they don't, the Lord will use the difficulties of that relationship as a tool of sanctification in your life. You can have a confidence in, in God's promise to you as a believer that you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus and that God will use the trial of that difficult marriage to help you to grow. And so we see here how, how sin has, has spread, as, as humanity has spread around the world, we see that, that sin has also spread around the world, even spreading to the, the promised line of, of Seth. In verse 5, we, we see just how broadly and how deeply that sin has spread. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the hot thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, although sin had affected all human beings through the fall, its unprecedented, unprecedented extent is a result of this intermarriage. This is the consequence of verses 1 to 4. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, whereas the Lord saw their wickedness. This is an intentional scorning by God of their extreme wickedness. Now, friends, there is no doubt that, that we are living in wicked times. But what we are seeing around us doesn't compare to what was going on in that day. Just look at those adjectives. Great wickedness. Every intention. Only evil. Sin was, was global, in infecting the entire world as it does now. It was also comprehensive, infecting people in, in, to the core of their being as it does now. But, but again, it's a matter of extent. Every part of man, mind, will, and emotions have been corrupted by sin. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that sin comes from the heart. From the heart. Anger begins in the heart. Lust begins in the heart. Covetousness, drunkenness, complaining, fear, and so on, all begin in the heart. Even good deeds are tainted by sin. Isaiah 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. 
Human beings sin because they are sinners. It, it, people sin, it's what they do because sinners is what they are. It, it's in their nature. They're born sinners. As David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And there's no corner of the world where this wasn't the diagnosis. Romans 3.12 says essentially the same thing. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But we need to remember here again that it's, it's, it's not just them. That's not just them. That apart from Christ, it was us. It was us. Yes, again, it's, it's maybe to, to a lesser degree. But you need to remember what you have been saved from and you need to rejoice. You need to rejoice in the, the great gift of salvation, that glorious gift of salvation that God has given you in spite of your pervasive and comprehensive wickedness. You need to resolve to, to continue to fight against the sin that still resides in your flesh. But if you are here this morning as one who was not born again, it's still you. It's still you. Those, those superlatives all apply to you. You are still wicked, just as, as they were. Again, maybe not to the same extent. But the wickedness, your wickedness is great, and every attention of the thoughts of your heart is also evil only continually. Here in, in our passage, God saw what was in man's heart, and so he responds from his heart in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And this raises yet another question, it's another interpretation issue that has troubled theologians. How does the omniscient God, the omniscient God who knows the end from the beginning, how does he have regrets? Did God somehow change his mind? And the word can mean that God changed his mind, but it can also mean grieved. It's the same word that it's used at the end of verse 7. I am sorry that I have made them. We see a parallel in 1 Samuel 15, 11, where God is said to be grieved over making Saul king. And this is a difficult theological question. Bruce Ware, in his book, God's Lesser Glory, explains that this indicates God's real experience. In historically unfolding relationships with people of changed dispositions or emotions in relation to some changed human situation. Just, he says that just because God knows in advance that some event will occur, this does not preclude God from experiencing appropriate emotions and expressing appropriate reactions when it actually happens. So what Ware is, is saying here is that, that God as a relational entity, as, as, a, as an entity we're made in his image, God responds appropriately to things to, he responds with grief to things that are grievous. He, he's not a robot. He has, uh, he has appropriate emotional responses. Now, Bruce Ware is, is writing in response to open theism, which is a, a heresy that, that teaches that God is not truly omniscient and God is not truly omnipotent, but changes his plans in response to the actions of people. In the words of, of open theist Clark Pinnock, 
The future is still being settled by both divine and human agencies. That is a very loaded statement. That is a very heretical statement. Denying who God is in his sovereignty. Yes, as human beings, we have responsibility, but it is God who is over all things. He is the one who is providentially bringing all of his plans and his purposes to their fruition in his perfect time. So when we read here that, that God shows regret, this is not remorse in the sense that he made a mistake in making man, rather that, that as a relational God, he is impacted by, he is grieved by what man has made of himself. Man's sin requires a response. A, a just God must deal with sin. And so he says in verse 7, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The destruction is going to spread as far as the sin. It's pervasive. It's permanent. It's a perfectly just judgment. God is going to wipe the face of the earth clean of every living thing. And the punishment affects not just man, but man's environment as well. God had cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. The ground had been polluted by Cain's sin. Now, Adam, now animals are going to suffer as well. Almost everything, everyone is going to die because of man's sin. But then in the midst of, of all that wickedness, in the, in the midst of that, that promise of destruction, hope shines forth. In verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When you see that word but there in scripture, that, that's very important because it's saying there's, there's a change that's happening here. It's like we read last week from, from Ephesians chapter 2 about the, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins and following the course of the world and, 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 and we, were, we, were, we were dead, we were following Satan. But God, but God and so, so this, this but here points to what God is doing. Friends, Noah here is, is a contrast to everything else we've read so far. Noah and God's response to him is, is contrasted with the rest of this section. Verse 9 is going to describe Noah as a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Remember that, that Enoch was said to have walked with God. So like Enoch, Noah's life was one of communion and of fellowship and obedience. But we need to be very careful here to understand that this is not works-based righteousness. As Donald Gray Barnhouse explains, there was no grace in Noah. The grace was in the eyes of the Lord. The grace was in the eyes of the Lord towards Noah. The grace of God is, is just as sweeping, just as comprehensive as his justice. And so we, 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 this passage is, is about God's gracious favor in spite of man's wickedness. Hebrews 11.7 gives us more of the picture of Noah. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so it is Noah's obedient fear as faith 
that has resulted in saving righteousness. And through the judgment uh, uh, that, that comes on the world, God is going to preserve Noah, the lone remnant of his line of promise. And it's so ironic that, that Noah is going to, to prove to bring, after all, the relief for mankind that Noah looked for. Well, as we look at this passage and, and see that the, these two groups of, of people here, ask yourself, am I righteous like, like Noah? Am I blameless in my generation? Again, we're not, ta not talking here about, about personal righteousness because, because no personal righteousness, no works-based righteousness can ever deliver you from God's judgment. Just as no flood can wipe away sin, for immediately after the flood in, in uh, Genesis 8.21, God declares that the attention of man's heart is, is evil from his youth. So we, we need to rely on something else, something greater than Noah. Someone greater than Noah. The one to whom Noah points. Noah is, is a type. Noah is a, is a picture, a, a shadowy picture that points us to a greater one through whom deliverance will come. Noah and Noah's con being contrasted with, with the generation around him, it, 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 it points to Christ who, who's contrasted with every generation. His is the only righteousness. He is the only one who is righteous. He's the only one to whom we can turn. As Augustine again said in the City of God, the fact that every individual springs from a condemned stock and because of Adam must first be cankered and carnal, only later become sound and spiritual by the process of rebirth. And death to the historical and death began the historical course of the two cities. The first is to be born as a citizen of this world. Only later became the one who was an alien in the city of men, but at home in the city of God. A man predestined by grace and elected by grace. By grace an alien on earth. By grace he was a citizen of heaven. We all live in one city or another. One city is going to be destroyed. The other city is going to be the eternal home of those who have repented and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Which city do you belong to? Are you part of the, the, the city of man? Or are you part of the city of God? Are you part of the, the line of promise? Or are you part of the line of those who have rejected the promise? Friends, the, the way to transfer your citizenship from the, the city of man to the city of God is by faith in Jesus Christ. By, by turning to the, the greater Noah. By, by living your life by, in faith in him, by, by walking in repentance and obedience as his spirit works in you, as, as you're made born again through the work of his spirit and as you're sanctified through the work of the spirit and, and your cooperation in obedience. You're not saved by works, you're saved by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. So turn to him and be saved.